Hello there. Welcome to Rome FM. Here we dive into the minds, workflows, and machinations of the Rome cult, the believers of Rome research. My name is Norman Cella, and I am on a mission to deconstruct wisdom from all walks of life so we can understand each other better. In this episode, we talk with Ryan Muller, who is focusing on learning and education at Google for Education, as well as the author of a book called Fractal Inquiry, a system for building knowledge in Rome. It covers the tools you need, plus six tips and eight use cases in building your knowledge graph within Rome Research. And it focuses on something that is very dear to my heart, and I feel it is the same for you as well, my dear listener. Questions. How do you develop the right questions to dive further in to a field or a thought or an idea or any pondering that you have within your Rome graph to push you further in? We talk about evergreen notes and atomic notes and atomic ideas and all that. But questions, questions are what drive us to want to know more, to create more blocks indented from previous questions using the analogy of fractals. So we talked about Ryan's origin story, how he dove into note taking and especially into space repetition when using it for learning languages and expanding it to everything that he's learned expanding his fields of interest into education and learning science, he found Stian Hucklev's research system, a self-hosted wiki, who we know is the guest from episode one of this show, introducing the possibilities of backlinking, and after a moment of exploration, stumbled into Rome research. And we dove into the heart of the conversation, Fractal Inquiry. What is a fractal? How do you apply that to the questions you ask yourself to further your knowledge of a specific field you are interested in? How do you shape the right questions which fit your intention? And what constitutes a good question and a bad question? When should you delete them? When should you filter them out? Would a public fractal inquiry graph work? And how do you generate quality questions? Myself and Ryan came to similar views concerning questions and their role in our graphs, but the journey to arriving at those conclusions were different. So it's nice to see the differences in how we view questions and how they allow us to propel and how they allow us to indent more of the things that we've observed, thought about, answered, etc., into our knowledge graphs. And we zoomed out into the education system and how the growth and the level of adaptation of education is still slow compared to other fields. Ryan shares his thoughts on the US education system and what would happen if Rome were to be implemented into the curriculum for a student going through said system and what he's looking forward to in Rome as well as what the tool means to him. All in all, quite a variety of topics, less on workflows and more on figuring out what blocks and what questions work best for you. So if you are on the journey to cultivate a quality knowledge graph, look no further. Let's dive into my chat with Ryan Muller, the author of Fractal Inquiry. So I have Fractal Inquiry annotated on my iPad. Uh, and <laughs> how I started... So, so, so here's the thing. How I started reading this was I, I took my coffee, I sat down at the dining table and it was a great, like great chill, cold morning. So it's like hot coffee, <laughs> cold morning, which is great. I was like, okay, let's read through this. Cause it's not that long, right? It's not that yeah, long, but it's, it's like not. concise, which is what I like. So I read it through that one morning and I found it pretty fascinating how you framed it. Because I think mm. I came to similar conclusions when it comes to framing questions within my Rome graph, but then you took it a step further using using this layout, like using fractals, which is super interesting mm-hmm. to me. I never would have thought about it that way. Might as well get right into it. Uh, Ryan, yeah. welcome to Rome FM. I do want to ask, uh, how are you doing this fine 2021? But it seems like you are doing pretty well. <laughs> Yeah, I'm uh, I'm in New York, uh, New York suburb now. We were one of the many who f- who fled the city early in 2020, and uh, so yeah, just hanging out here, working remotely, and roaming, <laughs> and roaming. <laughs> and of course, uh, we are going to be focusing on that roaming aspect, uh, but there has to be a time before you 
could even stumble into the activity of roaming. There were these dark times uh, before you found the tool Roam Research when you are, you know, working remotely or working on whatever it is that you are working on. And I think from your Twitter profile, it says Google for Edu, if I'm right. But could you tell me what were you doing before you found Roam Research and how did you discover the tool? Yeah, so I'll tell you the um, short version of the long story, which is in college, I got really interested in uh, basically how we can take notes better, how we can learn better just as a student. Um, And uh, I really fell into spaced repetition in college. So using that for language learning. um, And I was basically the big question on my, in my mind was, can we use that same system for everything? Uh, Because I was a math computer science major. Would that be as helpful as it was for learning language? So I experimented with different systems with uh, recording. One of my professors graciously let me record all of his lectures um, because where he was teaching happened to have a camera. And so we put those on YouTube. This is back when uh, YouTube only let you put it 10 minutes at a time. Uh So we had just (laughs) these long lectures that were one out of eight or whatever. And we uh, built a system that would string them together and then add notes in, in one web system using the YouTube player. And then you could also like create space repetition out of that, out of those notes, kind of like instead of highlighting, you turning, turning the notes into cards. So that's where I like kind of came into this, this, these kind of systems. Uh, after that, I went into Carnegie Mellon where they focus on the basically intelligent tutoring systems. So, um, that's kind of taking more of a heavy-handed approach where you are doing all of your problem solving basically on a computer interface and that computer can give you feedback at any point in time. Um, so rather than just putting the onus on the student, it's putting out more of the onus on the computer. But also during that time, I was learning all of this stuff about education, about learning science um, and taking notes on that. Um, and that's where I actually found uh, Stian's uh, researcher system, which um, it was basically just a wiki um, that you would host yourself, but it actually introduced this idea of backlinks way back then, like 10 years ago. So that was really a really cool way of seeing across all these papers I was reading where the common ideas were, uh, were falling into place. Um, and so I got connected with him back then. Then I was only in that program for about a year, uh, and then I went on to, to doing different technology companies and doing less of the reading and note-taking, but then I basically got connected back with him through Rome, and he was your first guest as well, so yeah, so it's really cool uh, circle. <laughs> and, and in the meantime, I wasn't really, I, was, I kind of played with different uh, you know, bookmarking, note-taking systems, but never got too serious about it. Found Rome, you know took a little while to get into it. Yeah. And it was, I just uh, kind of built up my system over time. I don't really know when it was that I started. Yeah. I think through reading uh, Andy's um, notes about evergreen notes and that, you know, that, that idea was really appealing to me. Uh, if I could, you know, kind of set in stone these like grand ideas that were coming into mind. And, but I found it really difficult to do. I found it really difficult to like have confidence in a particular idea. At some point I started switching to questions um, and I found it just really compelling to have the questions and then tie it to the space repetition. um, So that every time that question popped up, I would try my best to answer it. Um, And if I couldn't answer it, then in the meantime, I would try to find more things to read or think about. um, And so that, you know, if it came back up a few days later that I maybe would have something more to say about it. So emphasizing on the questions ended up becoming a better, I'm not going to say safety net, but more like a better alternative to if I were to dive deeper into this one topic or with this one thought, mm-hmm. if I'm unraveling it, instead of trying to find an idea and then make it evergreen, make it concise, make it this one atomic idea, yeah. questioning it allowed you to push further through. And therefore the side effect is that you get a deeper understanding is that like more or less where we're getting at here yeah and and at some point i kind of transitioned from putting things like as a page like an evergreen note as a page to 
um, realizing that if I had a block that contained some insight that I wanted to keep, I could just block ref that um, and see it again, uh, that those blocks themselves were like, could stand in as those kind of stepping stones of building that knowledge. So yeah, and then I guess the other component of it is that using the space repetition system, you see very clearly like, okay, I'm gonna see this again in a week, that's fine. But then over time it's like, oh, I'm gonna see this again in three months. Um, but this is something really interesting. So what, what can I do instead of, you know, because at the time, the only thing I had was a space repetition system. I realized, okay, I have to create more questions and go deeper. Yeah. So those questions will pop up um, and give me more time to work on this. So that's kind of where this fractal uh, analogy came from. Definitely. I really want to dive into that analogy uh, a lot more. Um, definitely to set a level field for, you know, anyone who isn't exactly technically minded uh, in terms of, like technical minded rather uh, to understand like fractals and their properties from one point to another. But I, right. before we, before we move on to that, I, I do want to ask when you have a question that will allow you to indent, create a block, understand it more, explore mm -hmm. it a lot more until you reach a point where maybe you get stuck or maybe you find something else that's parallel and then you try to deepen your understanding once again by putting in another question. And I hope our mm -hmm. dear listeners can visualize this on, on a graph. <laughs> um, I'm visualizing a number of indentations within, uh, below the parent block, which is the question that, you know, allowed you to go into this deep dive in the first place. Yeah. My question to that entire process is to what extent can you continue that to the point where the questions that pop up as a result of you deep diving can become mm -hmm. too niche or too relevant or too irrelevant. And right. the reason why I'm asking is because I, I run into those problems myself. Like I came into mm -hmm. very similar conclusions to you where I was trying to understand atomic ideas. So I tried that system and mm -hmm. I actually disagree with some of what Andy's notes, which is interesting, right? Um, but it's good. Like I've learned what does not work for me. And therefore that's a lot of value. I have picked questions as alternatives. I call them gunpowder to give me a checkpoint as to, okay, I'm, I was stuck here. I have a question now I can, you know, continue on. I have problems with the depth of which I should keep questioning one single idea and right. the width at which I might block ref something from another question or another idea uh, to mm. see if it's worth it. Um, so I'd love to hear your take on this. Like when you, do you know when to stop? Do you have a process for, I should allow this to just marinate and wait until the next time it, it will pop up in SRS? I mean, I would say one thing is that the, the way the questions pop up, um, when, so they would come up in my daily note backlinks. And, yeah. uh, and so the way that I continue working on the question is I pull in a block ref to the block containing the question. Um, that way I'm, I'm starting fresh every time. And if I do want to go back and see what I wrote before, um, okay. yeah, yeah. that's another step in terms of creating new questions. I, I don't know. I'm, I, my time is fairly limited and I'm, I'm just pretty lazy overall. So I don't <laughs> have too much of the problem that I'm writing too many questions. I don't know. I think I've reached the point in my, in my life where I know I have a good sense of what's interesting. And so which, which has pros and cons definitely can uh, probably block out things that are, that are very interesting, but yeah, I just basically go by, by, by my intuition. I, I think I know those pros and cons as well, uh, especially when everything <laughs> can seem so interesting and so fascinating that you don't know what's behind it, right? If you take the plunge mm -hmm. and you start asking questions this way, like, oh, okay, this sounds interesting. Let's go. Um, and you find out that maybe not the, the end result may not be as interesting or whatever. Maybe it's not that, but rather that you have strayed so far away from your intention in the beginning of your session in wanting to deep dive into something that you think to yourself, oh, I've wasted my time or maybe not wasted my time, but rather, oh, what was I doing? I was just playing around, which was not <laughs> my intention, potentially, right? Potentially. Right. Uh, so there, there comes the method of trying to filter out questions that should you even bother pursuing it or can you just delete it? Right. There are blocks right. which are necessary, uh, which I think um, uh, Mark, uh, Mark Robertson uh, from a previous guest uh, talks about pruning the graph or even filtering out unnecessary blocks and deleting them 
uh, regularly, yeah. uh, which is very, very useful, especially yeah. for those who have big graphs, <laughs> speed and uh, a lot of lagging, you know, try and delete uh, as much of that as possible. Since we are pretty much diving into the world of fractal inquiry, I, I do want to step back a bit and actually talk about the meaning of fractals, the word fractal mm-hmm. in fractal inquiry. So I'm going to play uh, the fool here and ask, what is a fractal? Why does that work best as an analogy for questions which leads to questions, which leads to more questions? Right. So a fractal is basically a shape um, and it could be two-dimensional, three-dimensional. It can be more theoretical, more mathematical object. Um, So the most famous probably is the the Mandelbrot uh, set, which forms very interesting shapes. and, And that is a fractal. But it's, it's a shape that where if you zoom in um, on the shape, you basically get the shape again. Uh, or not necessarily the shape, but something with the same properties. Um, so one of the analogies I use in the book is uh, you have like a coastline and you're trying to measure the coastline. So if you just think of that coastline as a straight line, you measure it with a ruler. Um, it might be a mile long. Uh, but if you start to zoom in, you see that the the coastline has zigs and zags. And now if you start with a smaller ruler measuring those zigs and zags, it's actually uh, a lot longer. Yeah. And so basically something with a fractal dimension is it looks two-dimensional, but it actually has kind of this, they call it like a 2.5 dimension. <laughs> so the idea with the questions is that you have a straight line of questions one two three four five but because you're you're adding questions within those um and they're all spaced out uh you are able to kind of add questions in between without having to necessarily disrupt that that overall shape it's a bit abstract um and the it it, there's not a lot of depth to the analogy where (laughs) You can, you know, really go into the math of it. Uh, but the idea is basically that the combination of, of using space repetition on multiple questions. Yeah, I saw the, the diagram of the, uh, the coastlines in your book. And the very first thing that came to my mind, which does not in any way, shape or form. Oh, I said shape. Uh, but in any way, shape or form uh, represent a coastline uh, is a timeline like a timeline of history. Mm-hmm. And when right. you zoom out, it's like, say, a timeline of humanity, right? When you have these different empires, you have these different world wars, these events. And then when you zoom in, it's still the same line, but they branch off for different events, um, right. which is a very simplistic way of at least gaining the basic understanding of what it can be. But I think the 0.5 version of it would be the value you gain from actually branching off to these questions, yeah. which add to the overall value of the narrative of that main timeline, the coastline, the fractal that exists in the first place, because that is the, I feel that is the form or the shape of your attention because you chose to pay attention yeah. to this one idea. You want to deep dive into it. It doesn't matter how, how you are tackling it, whichever question you're making or you're trying to answer rather, it'll end up being when you zoom out, it'll be this shape that represents oh, this is my graph with me asking these questions and me deep diving into them. And then these questions form that coastline, the coastline of your knowledge, rather, I think would be a good way to put it. Yeah, I I think the history is actually a great example because I think most people have that intuition that they can understand history, that, you know, these things happened a long time ago. I have a really high level view of, of what happened. But, you know, at any point in time, I could really dive in and get such a rich depth of uh the events going on day to day the the argument i I try to make is that that applies to almost anything that you want to learn um Mm. or even engage with and i think there's some danger in that uh, like in the present day like political arguments people can get into these details of you know this this side had this point that was right and this other side had that point that was right and you can make a really strong argument basically for anything if you go in deep enough. Um, so you have to have that kind of multi-level view of things. In that case as well, when you are trying to state your position, when you're trying to state your motion, I mean, not only in the political argument, but in any general discussion, you also yeah. have to recognize which level you are playing at with the other right. party, right? 
because say that you and I are talking about politics, which I mean, I'm probably not uh, going to do that, but are you going to focus on the fine details or am I going to focus on the general narrative of the last six months? Those represent different facets of the overall narrative, but because we focus on different parts of it, what are we trying to prove here? It's, it, it gets a little bit messy, but then those are fractals that are more interpersonal, right? Like they have to, I think, I think if you try to do a fractal inquiry in a public graph, you have to have certain rules that dictate to what extent is the base foundation of the fractal deep diving questions, which are allowed and what are the necessary arguments and or terms and or phrases allowed, which does break the question. Can you do fractal inquiry in a public graph or do you think it'll be very, very messy, like very, very difficult to moderate? Yeah, I would really like to to play with that. I think, yeah, I think your framing is right. Like there needs to be certain ground rules. There needs, I think there needs to be built in systems of people saying that, you know, this depth is too deep or basically people having more control over the, um, the kind of algorithm that brings something back. If people dislike something that could push it further out, if people like something, it could bring it closer in. Um, so, you know, instead of something like Reddit, where you have what is popular right now, um, at the top and, uh, old things, no matter how popular they are, old things go away eventually. Yeah. Um, it's more of this kind of bouncing thing where the, the um, popular stuff bounces back at some point. I think that would work. I think that general idea would work, but I'm sure there's a lot of refinement that would come from experience. It works best, especially in the public graph, because technically that is a closed social environment. So yeah. greater control over that. Reddit, maybe still, because you can still do rules and moderations for a subreddit. I'm thinking about Twitter because Twitter can be very, very chaotic. If yeah. you try to touch into one field that can be controversial at times and someone brings their own individual algorithm of understanding and or their motion, which propels them to want to think this way. And you somehow in your tweet, you know, bring up a few phrases or words that trigger certain, shall we say, certain subjective opinions that go against their lens or their perspective, etc., or their motion, it'll trigger mm -hmm. a fight or it'll trigger something negative yeah. or at least unintended, right? <clears throat> Unless you're a troll. I mean, that's something else completely, but, but, um, but unintended, which, which maybe in a public graph, I think that would really, really work. Now I want to see how that may work. Maybe the multiplayer Rome book club is the closest thing right now. The potential, I'm, I'm thinking about community graphs right now and community graphs are mainly for general social interactions. So they may not be the best place to start, but they at least have the foundation, like a willing set of members who might, who are already talking with each other so they can agree or disagree in a civilized manner. Uh, so I can maybe bring this up with a couple of people. I think that'd be pretty great. Like you should start pitching to people like you want to deep dive into some questions. <laughs> I take it you've been doing some level of fractal inquiries for a number of fields up until now. And it's stabilized within Rome because now you have this yeah. visual manner of doing it. What has been the craziest straight line of questions as a result of fractal inquiry that uh, you've surfaced? Uh, as a result of you being within the graph for a while? Um, I, I mean, I think I would point to the kind of macroeconomics uh, stuff that I'm learning. And I'm not, It's it's been interesting because I haven't done anything to try to learn it like in a traditional way. I haven't gone to Wikipedia. I haven't opened a course, um, but there are just a number of podcasts uh, and Twitter accounts where interesting things pop up. So most of the claims I, I feel like are pretty ambiguous. Um, and so being able to put those as a question and have it be something where I can answer it from those different perspectives that I'm hearing uh, over time and then kind of build up a uh, build up a picture in my head of what kind of these experts are saying about it um, with and somehow skipping the basics, which probably is not the best way to do it, but I think it's been an interesting way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't say rather not best, but yeah, well, interesting is definitely closer to what I am trying to articulate right now. It's more like a fresh alternative angle 
in which trying right. to understand the same field, sometimes you're set to certain biases because you've learned something the traditional manner. But then when you come in from, say, a computer science background and you suddenly learn about macroeconomics, you take the same frameworks, the same models, the same theories from your initial field and you initiate synthesis as you're trying to understand that other field because you come from your own primary field. So mm-hmm. like the the act of connecting those two fields together within your head can be found as evidence in all of the questions that you ask yourself. The more right. you take the time to deep dive into the other field. It's like, you know, it's like taking day trips to another city and you're like, oh, what else is, you know, what are good cafes or bars out there? Uh, and then you come back and then you compare it with, you know, the food at your town and you think, okay, the sandwiches there are better. The beer here is a lot better, but then I still want to go more. Let's go try again. And you'd go from comparative to original, maybe, maybe not original. There has to be a word for it. I can't think of it right now, but basically you start from a place where because you're in in an unknown field, you start off comparatively because that is the position from which you understand things. And once you have built the foundation, then your questions start from the questions that you commonly ask in your primary field to questions that propel you to start building your own unique framework as you're in that secondary field, which further propels the questions that you might, might want to ask yourself from that huge segue. I might as well just ask you right now, if you are in a field that you are interested in, say macroeconomics or any other field, and you have initiated your SRS, you've started and you've asked yourself some basic questions. What does this term mean? What does that term mean? Um, this person seems like a very great figure in macroeconomics. I should learn about them more. They've studied this. What does that mean? Those are the very simple, basic questions. But say after some time, you've hit some barriers. How do you formulate useful questions to deep dive into a field? Like what, do you have like a process or do you have a way to like filter out what's good and bad? I'd love to hear your take on that because I'm very, very curious about that myself. Yeah, so I guess I would start with the first part. Um, I've actually, on more of the basic facts, I actually have been moving back into more of a traditional space repetition format. So uh, sort of example in macroeconomics, I found a great article that's kind of the history of the U.S. dollar. Um, And so those kind of historical facts um, that are, you know, have very clear answers uh, for those I've been using more of a a space repetition, you know, prompt response format. So that when it comes to the, I guess, the more generative questions, um, I think it probably depends on your personality. So mine is is really, I, I like to come up with ideas and think about building technology. Um, and so for me, some of those questions are are like, what is the future of something? What is it? So I have uh, from yesterday, what is the future of textbooks? Um, and that's something that I can pretty much write about, uh, you know, anytime it comes up, because I like uh, building up ideas in that. And And I think in macroeconomics, um, I am not nearly familiar enough with it to come up with good technology ideas. So it's more of a practical, like, how should I invest my money um, kind of question that is is more generative for me because it has such uh, immediate consequences or something like, you know, if... If I'm holding all of my money in cash, is that going to be a problem in the future? So um, (laughs) I feel like use cases that are highly relative to you make it easier for you to deep dive into it, even if it doesn't directly answer the knowledge acquisition part of the field. But like in your case, you may not know enough, but still you want to try to make that connection. Therefore, in relation to my situation right now, how can I understand this field more often? I feel like I've done that a lot, especially for investing. I was in fintech and I was in charge of writing learning materials for people to teach them about investing in Forex and trading and all that. Mm-hmm. And I have to learn all the terms and phrases and I don't want to have to write something that seems inappropriate or wrong or may result in unsolicited advice because in the world of finance, that's very, that's a very touchy subject, right? You have to be very careful about how you articulate certain things. So 
a lot of the questions have been about, okay, I've learned this, but how does this relate to if I were to invest? Yeah, so some of the questions that I would ask are very relative. As in, yes. in relation to me, what about this? In relation right. to the future, what about that? Uh, you have a section here uh, in, in your book about, about predictions, which I find uh, mm-hmm. very interesting. So uh, I'll, read out the, I'll read out the excerpt. So it's the section on trying to formulate questions. And this says, quote, predictions, is your knowledge helping you better anticipate the future? You can't be sure unless you test it by making predictions. Uh, Scott Alexander's annual predictions are a shining example of this. I like predictions mainly because they add the time factor to you wanting to learn something. And I, I think the influence of that time factor is heavily correlated to the impact of that field in what you're doing right now, especially when you have like a project and you want to make a prediction that is related to the project that you're working on right now, because that project has an impact on your life. You want to know what happens in the future. If it's a bad future, get out, right? You know, something like that, right? But um, if it's a field that you are just diving into out of curiosity, even if you make a prediction, you may not make a decision or act upon said prediction, even if you answer it. I'm curious now, uh, what percentage of the questions in all of your inquiries within your graph are future oriented or prediction related? For me, it's actually very little. Um, oh, okay. My, my main field is education, which moves very slowly uh, in general. And so um, I think making predictions about changes in education is, is not that fun oh. um, because the usual change is, is no change. Um, 2020 was a big exception everyone jumping onto remote learning, but in general, it's, it's pretty slow. Yeah. So I am not taking my own advice very well in that, in that <laughs> regard, but um, I do think if I get further into uh, finance economics, then that's something where I would try to do more predictions. I'm really interested in predictions on education though, because since yeah. 2020 has been such a huge, huge factor in forcing people to be, remote going on remote learning initially as a band-aid solution because you know obviously you don't want to make contact and so everybody's on zoom and then there's that whole fiasco with zoom security and this huge scale unheard of uh, etc and now people are adapting to it or at least they're trying to implement traditional school curriculums onto a remote environment and there are there's some friction to that it makes me want to dive into some questions related to education but seeing as how you said education can, <laughs> the rate at which it's growing or evolving uh, or adapting uh, over time is quite slow. It makes me honestly a little bit sad, uh, a little yeah. bit tragic uh, to hear that with the internet being up here and, you know, so many opportunities online, ways to connect with people all around the world. Yet still the slow growth is, may not, may or may not be, you can totally correct me on this, may not be may or may not be related to the growth of the school or the university or the campus as a physical location and as a symbol of education in general as in they must default to the speed at which secondary learning tertiary learning institutions will grow therefore education will grow it's <laughs> it's it's a bit i might not have articulated that well but i'm basically just saying that i'm just annoyed that remote learning is still like treat it like a band-aid solution and that right. more and more people should be taking it more online. But you know, that, that is a question I will uh, space add on my SRS for another day. <laughs> yeah. I think um, I, I have uh, my thread of Palooza thread was about uh, learning with YouTube. I think there's huge opportunities there, um, but, but not everyone takes them and, I think it can be difficult. Um, so one of the examples that I was looking at after I wrote that thread um, is about a, uh, a Minecraft speedrunner called Dream, who, um, who I guess set some world record. Um, and, and then it was disputed that uh, he was cheating because uh, he was basically getting too lucky. And so there are all these YouTube videos created about uh, basically analyzing the probability of his outcomes, uh, you know, using binomial distribution and 
stopping rules and all of this that was getting into fairly advanced math. So, yeah. so there was, I had seen tweets of people saying, Oh, you know, kids are really getting into math just because of this. Um, and I think it's one of those great examples of getting into something deep through something through the motivation of, um, or something that motivates people, um, that itself may not be related to math. I changed my mind a little bit after searching on Twitter, um, trying to find that original tweet because I just found a lot of kids saying like, oh, I'm watching these videos and I don't understand any of the math. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know if it's, they were trying to understand it or is it more like, because they know it's a Minecraft video, they will watch it, but then they'll just, you know, blaze through it and not really care. I think if there's not a low friction way of, of gaining that knowledge, then it's not going to be pursued by 99% of people. Um, I mean, binomial distribution is not exactly the <laughs> most accessible <laughs> way to understand right. the possibilities of a Minecraft speed one, which I mean, the very first thing I think of is that he has like a key to generate the world in a specific way. And then the chances are always constant. And then there's more of his efficiency. Maybe that's why he's so lucky. It could be that. I mean, so many different ways I can think of, but that's already in a, like a completely different field. That's like already gamification and all that. So it's fascinating to even bring Minecraft into this because education is now not so closed as an environment. Like you mm -hmm. can ride on the vehicle of other contexts to learn fields that are normally taught uh, in school. Like yeah, maybe yeah. someone can actually learn, you know, from what was it? Khan Academy and then apply yeah. that to Minecraft or their own, like another game of their choice, or if they yeah. want to be a YouTuber and then they want to learn math that way or science and that rather, I think that'd be pretty cool. Like, I think if they, even if they didn't understand the video at all, it could be that, uh, you know, if it, when it does come up in their class, they have a little more spark behind trying to learn that and understand it and contextualize it in something that matters to them. Yeah. You know, I get that a lot, actually. You said that you learn SRS because you're learning languages, right? Like, do you, right. were you exposed to languages from meeting a lot of people from different backgrounds or was it something else? Because the way that I learned about languages was through games and anime. So mm -hmm. I learned those languages because I wanted to watch more of that. And very strange story. I'm, I'm Malaysian, but then I moved to the Netherlands when I was like 10. Mm -hmm. And before then I was a huge, I was a huge TV addict and I would watch Nickelodeon for so long. And when SpongeBob came out, I watched like the first two to three seasons. I was so addicted that I memorized the scripts in English. But then when I wanted to watch TV, when I was in the Netherlands, it was in Dutch. So I learned Dutch because I saw SpongeBob and Squidward and Patrick speaking in Dutch and I could like associate the words together and I ended yeah. up becoming a really good Dutch speaker. But anyway, that's, I digress completely. <laughs> but, um, do you see maybe not, maybe the growth of education may be slow, but do you think that just like how remote learning is slowly becoming the norm for people just trying to learn something in general, do you see the blend of contexts from other industries, other fields being put into education or education being normalized in these contexts uh, to become scalable or like to grow a lot more until to the point where you can have like a 10 year old kid grow up 50 years later and they will learn their entire school curriculum on a Minecraft server. Maybe like that. Do you see any of that happening? I think there are many, many possibilities right now that are enabled by tools, by, by the information access you have on the internet and by, ways of exploring them through video games, through YouTube. And I think Rome itself is a great way of approaching these kind of things as a, in a more academic or scholarly mindset um, than yeah. maybe you otherwise would. So I think those possibilities are there. Um, but I think that the school systems only really familiar with the United States. So, but I think the school systems here are just far too incentivized to stay with what they're doing, which is trying to improve test scores, uh, you know, certain, certain tests at certain ages, 
you know, are fixed. And so you have to learn the curriculum in a certain, at a certain time. And so it becomes very hard to make those changes, those, those big changes. If Rome were to be introduced in that education system, how do you think it'd be different? Well, I think my mindset was really changed by the um, How to Take Smart Notes book. And I was not expecting this um, from the title, but the takeaway I really got from it was that it is very strange to make people an essay or, for example, to choose to choose an essay topic um, when they don't have any knowledge on that subject. You know, I think anyone can build up the kind of knowledge to write an essay um, and Rome can help with that. But I think what the author suggests um, is that you, as you're building up knowledge over time um, and taking good notes uh, in Rome or wherever you, you can use that knowledge to come up with, to at a later point, come up with a, a topic that you can really write something interesting about. Right, right. So use the chance or the opportunity to write an essay, not on a topic spoon-fed to you by the system, but rather from the resultant blocks that are from your graph. Right. Which, yeah, because you've learned those. Your graph is what you know, uh, obviously, otherwise you wouldn't, you wouldn't have bothered writing it down in your knowledge graph. But I think that that's a great way to put it, actually, now that I think about it. I'm not sure how it is for in the American education system. Um, a lot of knowledge is standardized, at least from what I see in the Malaysian education system. And I went to British school in the Netherlands, so that's like the British education system as well. You know, it's just given to us and then we have to follow week by week. And then it doesn't really encourage different levels of learning and or students with different levels of learning capability. Like you just assume what they're teaching is the average keep up and that's it. Right. And maybe there's some similarities there because you want to incentivize graduating students, right. As opposed to failures, etc. Um, having a Rome graph with every kid to come in before they, you know, they go to public school or they, they do the tests or they're learning things within the building, which is what you call the school, but rather you go to the school to meet with other people, but where you're learning is your graph, right? So like, that's like having that relationship be formalized, I think is when the growth of education will accelerate a lot when we can take yeah. the knowledge with us forever. I think that'd be yeah. so great. Right. Otherwise, I mean, I'm just, I'm just sick of buying textbooks all the time every year. I hated that yeah. so much, but like, yeah, I, I'm really excited for that. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think people, some people have a kind of dystopian vision of, or they think it's dystopian that each person is sitting in front of their computer and not not interacting face to face and socializing, which is the point of school. But I think there are many ways that you can incentivize um, that you are interested in these topics and you have peers and teachers around you who uh, have something to say on those topics. It's still possible to build structures where. You know, it could be a lecture by the teacher. It could be a presentation by another student. It could be a discussion where you're coming in uh, with the incentive of filling out your own notes. Um, but it is like a, a group interaction. That did spark something that I read a long time ago. I, I don't know if you noticed. Do you know, um, is it democratic learning or democratic education? Have you heard of that before? It's, no. uh, I think it's, I think that's the term for it. It's like from kindergarten onwards you have a huge compound, you know, the same format as a school, but then kids are free to learn what they want. And then the teachers are there as guides to help them learn what they want. So a different section right. of the compound hold the sciences or the arts, etc., And they are graded not by standardized tests, but by their ability to understand what they are trying to understand. So right. if the if the kid is interested in the arts, then they tell their teacher like, oh, I really like the arts. And then the teacher's like, okay, cool. Let's let's bring you to the corner where all the arts books are and all the paints and brushes and everything. Uh, and let's see what what you can understand. And I, I remember, and this is way before Rome, like 
I think it's like years ago that I thought about this. And I remember thinking that democratic learning, which I think is still the term for it, democratic learning had some similarities with some mini project MBA courses that I've seen online for those already in the working world. And they're trying to do the semi hackathon online courses uh, from this company called Hyper Island. And how that works is that they give you the principles and you apply it to a project and then you pitch that in 12 weeks with a team uh, in front of like a group of judges, which is similar to like a PhD, that sort of thing, uh, but more like in a startup sense. So I thought that the democratic learning felt like it's the foundation for giving the student or the kid the pursuit of wanting to learn more for their own knowledge graph, which is still mentally in their mind, in their brain, and then actually applying it into something that represents their interests. Like their skills are represented well by their projects. Uh, and democratic learning felt like the beginning of that, like the bud, like the seed that is planted for them to pursue that. I, I thought that that would be pretty interesting. And I thought that was a very revolutionary way of looking at how do you teach a kid to grow, uh, to become smarter or to become more informed in modern society. Educating a child in this decade is going to be very different, different from educating a child in the previous decade. Like that's, there's that, like, at least that's to me, that feels like evidence of a, a growth in education, but yeah. you know, to each their own observations. <laughs> yeah. There's the, um, the Sudbury Valley schools, um, that I think are similar to what you describe. And they also have a model where the, I think there's like a committee of students and teachers who set the rules of the school, um, and even like discipline students. Yeah. Now, now you make me want to write a few questions to surface up the next time I think about it. Cause it's been a while since <laughs> I think like I, I had that thought, oh boy, that was 2017, 2016, 2017. I read about it from someone on Quora who sent their kid to that and he, he's American. And then he, I think it was the school he moved to Columbia, I think. And then he brought his kid there and he was worried about the format because the format is very different. He, he yeah. went to public school, so he was used to that, but he thought that there was a benefit to this, but it was still experiential. So, you know, confidence level does not always correlate with the, the willingness to actually go ahead with something. Uh, you can always look at something skeptically and still go ahead with it. Right. Like that's something like that. And then he said that in the end it was pretty good. So the kids yeah. learning a lot more. So I, I hope to see that more often. And I hope to see that also paired with a Rome graph. Uh, <laughs> Cause I think that'll be fantastic because a kid that can do something like a show and tell, and then they show their Rome yes. graph will be the most adorable and awesome thing ever. Because they'd be like, oh, here's my page, right? My page is on flowers or something. Oh, that'd be so awesome. Like I would love to see that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh on that note we can see rome being used as a way to manage the questions in our head to also keep track of the different paths that our act of deep diving can lead to and from like zooming out into the field of education to educate ourselves and to also be the you know knowledge management box for everything that we've learned uh and maybe we can see that adapting into or actually being put into the education system over time. But I would like to know what are you most excited about uh, from Rome research? Is there a particular field or feature or something they've said before that you think like would blow your mind once you have access to that? Well, something uh, more, I guess, right on the horizon is uh, what I'm exploring with incremental reading. So the general idea there is that if you have something kind of more long form, uh, like a PDF, a video, or a book, that uh, you can, you know, obviously as you're reading it, you can take notes, but you can also set your location and use space repetition so that when that comes back, so that if you don't finish it and, it, and you add the space repetition tag and it comes back, then you can jump back to your location and you can use your previous notes and space repetition cards and fractal inquiry questions all as ways to that. Hopefully not only do you remember what you've previously read, but you've actually like built that knowledge up and, and added to it and further incentivize you to keep reading when it comes up again. And so uh, 
There is a, a YouTube extension that for Rome.js that, that helps you record the timestamp of a YouTube video, um, which is very helpful for that. And I think we will be seeing some PDF and other more long-form text options on the horizon. I need that. I have so many. I, it is insane. Uh, <laughs> and... Although I do like reading on my iPad more, which means that I don't really have access to my graph yeah. then. And I do like to annotate. So like it's kind of hard to annotate a file when you're in your room. I write the notes separately and after that I put that in room, it's okay. If there was a way to play around with the PDF while I'm in my room graph, that would be fantastic. Like I, I know you can iframe it. Like it's it, that's a pretty simple way of doing it. But I sort of mm -hmm. need a lot more. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure how you interact with a PDF but for me, it's it's a lot of annotating. It's a lot of looking, just looking at the paper. It, mm -hmm. It's a lot of actually not looking at my graph because because I can get distracted by a block that I see from a different page or something like that. Having the PDF on my iPad is a forced environment that allows me to read further into the pages. So that's always good. But if I can do, if I can emulate that, but still be in the room graph, I think that'd be great. And also to keep track of when where I'm reading because. Incremental reading sounds amazing. I want it to be implemented because so uh, implemented <laughs> incremental reading. So uh, Rome research team, if you are listening, uh, we've got a lot of people who are interested in reading within Rome. So maybe that's something to look forward to. <laughs> yeah. Also, uh, coming up on time, but I would love to close off this maybe round one uh, for this conversation and we can always continue another time. With a couple of questions, which I think you may already be expecting if you say that you've listened to the episode. So the first one is, how would you describe Rome to someone who hasn't started using it? So um, when I introduced it to some of my colleagues at work, um, I called it uh, basically journaling with a wiki or journal meets wiki. So um so I am a big user of the daily notes page. Um, and basically I think as a way to get started, it's good to just record what you're doing in the daily notes page. And then the second piece of that is you come across something that you want to keep track of that you want to um, build up, then you create a page from that. And so I think those two elements form the, the big ideas of the value of it without trying to get into some of the nitty gritty blocks and transclusion and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh transclusion sounds like a very scary word uh, to anyone who's <laughs> not really, not really initiated, but really the, that is honestly the workflow for a lot of people and don't really need anything more than that. Really. Like if you just want to have links for everything, just write everything in your daily notes and it'll surface up just like how you want it. I think that is more than enough. I, now that I think about it, I've never actually talked to someone and told them about Rome and used Wikipedia as a reference, even though there's so many different, so many commonalities. I never thought about it that way. I feel like it's been brought up in multiple episodes, but I've always kept Wikipedia, the entity separate and the act of note-taking journaling writing things down, storing knowledge to be different as well. But yeah, okay. I think that'd be a pretty good model to use the next time. I just meet someone then and just say, hey, do you know the Astrolab? But anyway, that's a whole other thing altogether. And the next question is, what does Rome mean to you? So I think uh, for me, I, had, I mentioned at the beginning that I did this PhD program. I joined this PhD program, but I dropped out after a year. I think for me, the day job of building programming, building software is, is where, what I'm best at. But I think the, the PhD aspect of continuing to build knowledge and further my education, further my thinking, and, you know, hopefully contribute to some aspect of, of humanity's knowledge at some point. I think Rome is where I do that, where I continue to do that, even though it's not really my day job. I am able to bring some aspects of it to my day job. And it's, it, it, it's still, a, it can be a tough sell to, uh, to try to 
say, hey, everyone, if you only would read this paper, uh, it has some insights about this topic. But of course, it's, you know, a 30 page PDF and <laughs> no one has time for that. <laughs> No, it's okay. I mean, 30 pages, like you can do it in one morning. I, I have, and <laughs> I even played around and doodled on it as well. Like just to make a more relevant memory of it. Cause I enjoyed, I really did enjoy reading it. It's pretty short and pretty concise. So. Oh, sorry. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't mean my own. I meant. Uh, oh, right. Okay. <laughs> just uh, just any, any academic paper. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. No, okay. It was just a coincidence. Cause it was like your, your book is like 30 pages. So it yeah. makes sense. <laughs> But yeah, it is, it is true. Like it, in general though, not many people would actually be willing to sit down and go through 30 pages in one go, especially yeah. when it's really dense, chock full of yeah. information, right? That's a whole other thing altogether. That's why we need things like incremental learning, uh, incremental reading rather to mm -hmm. slowly absorb it page by page. If it, that, if it's that dense that you need to yeah. take your time, uh, doing yeah, it. And I don't, I think if I hadn't, done that one year of PhD, I wouldn't have built that basic knowledge that I need to parse some of these papers that I'm still reading. All right. And a bonus question for you. If I want to initiate fractal inquiry for any field of my own interest, like someone has listened to this conversation, there has to be a really good end result or great reason as to why you should pursue that in the first place. So right. I would love to hear what compelled you to want to start asking yourself more questions from the very first time you initiated the thought of uh, actually doing fractal inquiry, like the very first time you started doing it. I don't have a specific memory, but I, I have a question that I think almost everyone listening might, uh, might be compelled to, to try out, which is um, what do I want to learn to do with Rome next. And, uh, you know, so, so just mechanically, I think there's two ways that you can start this process. Um, write the question in a block, and then basically you want to add something that's going to make it come back to you in a later date. The, I think the easiest way still is with the Rome toolkit, uh, which is a Chrome extension, um, and the, the space repetition thing there. You could also use Rome's Delta feature, or you can use a smart block, which, um, and give that block a tag. Uh, I use the tag QQ and use a smart block that pulls uh, a random block with that tag. Whenever you have time, you can just pull in a question. You're starting with one question, so it's going to be that one. Um, and then when it comes up again, uh, just type your answer. And if you have something else you want to do, um, like say, say you want to do incremental reading, then your next question is how do I do incremental reading in Rome? So yeah, I do have a lot of questions that are just about my own Rome process, which, uh, which is always fun. <laughs> yeah. I hoard a lot of questions on like one <laughs> giant page. And sometimes mm -hmm. if I want to like prompt myself, I just look at that page and yeah. I focus on the block that I want to develop more. And then I have that on the sidebar and thinking like, okay, which questions seem more relevant or which questions stand out as a result of me being in this context. So, mm -hmm. you know, so for those like wanting to start doing this for the first time, it's fine to start with very simple questions because that's how I yeah. started. It's also very good to track the questions that you used because they can become the building blocks for other questions or they can inspire you to actually ask a question that is completely irrelevant, but still it sparked the idea in the first place. So yeah. having that in the background in your graph, which is trackable, uh, will be fantastic. And with that being said, Ryan, thank you so much. If we want to reach out to you to ask more questions, uh, questions, uh, for fractal inquiry or anything that we talked about in this conversation, what is the best way to do that? So definitely on Twitter, um, and my DMS are open or you can, uh, tag me and I try to read most of what's on there. So, um, Cicatriz, C-I-C-A-T-R-I-Z. Okay. What does that mean, by the way? I never got to ask you about um, that. So it's a little <laughs> embarrassing. I, it's, it's a Spanish word that means scar and I don't actually speak Spanish at all. Oh, <laughs> um, but, uh, it was the name of a song by the Mars Volta and I was a fan back 
back okay. when that started. So, yeah. Nice. Uh, a little bit of a fun fact there uh, for Ryan <laughs> right at the end. So I will, of course, uh, link Ryan's Twitter right there in the show notes right below. And anything and everything that we talked about, I have tried my best to write notes on it on the fly in the Rome FM graph. So Ryan, thank you so much. And I will see you on Twitter. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. Make sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast listening app. And for a full version of the show notes to this episode, you can check out the public Rome graph. The link to that will be in the description right below. For more updates, comments, feedback, and suggestions, you can reach out to me at RomeFM on Twitter. Keep roaming your thoughts, and I will see you in the next episode. Take care. <laughs>